0: Hello, and welcome to the Allen and Overy podcast. This is the third in a series examining the impact of the general data protection regulation. In this podcast, we are focusing on key regulatory enforcement action over the past year, general regulatory trends, and looking at practical ways to avoid enforcement action. My name is Ali Parvin. Joining me today are Jane Finlayson Brown and Nigel Parker. Who are both partners in our data protection team in London, where they advise clients on a wide range of data protection related matters. I'm also delighted that we are joined by David Smith, a special advisor to Alan and & Overy, and formerly the Deputy Data Protection Commissioner at the UK's Information Commissioner's Office, where David also participated in the Article 29 Working Party, now the European Data Protection Board. David, Perhaps I can start with you. What, in your view, are the most significant matters of the year from a regulatory enforcement perspective?
1: Well, it's certainly been an interesting year. I I suppose the highlight is the €50 million fine imposed by the French Data Protection Authority, the CNIL, on Google. Uh, But actually, for actions under the GDPR, under the new legal regime, apart from that, we haven't seen a huge amount because... These investigations take time for data protection authorities, and they have to have a proper investigation and go through due process. Uh, what we've seen, I suppose, suggests that your fines around Europe are uh, pretty much in line with what we might have expected from the ICO before, perhaps going a bit higher. Uh, one of the biggest was in Portugal for what, around about 400,000 uh, euros. That was to do with a lack of security, a serious lack of security in a hospital. In Poland, there's been a fine of around 220,000. Denmark, 120,000. Uh, others, Austria, Germany, have actually been much lower. Uh, so no great surprises. Uh, but I think you know, we're, we're, interesting times are ahead. Uh, these investigations which have been going on, some of them at least are coming close to a conclusion. Elizabeth Denham, the, the UK commissioner, uh, said recently that there are a couple of large cases in the pipeline within you know, a matter of weeks. Uh, and perhaps a little worryingly, she said, we need to enforce strongly and firmly if there's any misuse of data. So there might be something big coming. And Ireland, which has a, a leading role with supervising big tech companies, has 18 large scale investigations uh, are underway. And if we look, Further afield, the the Federal Trade Commission uh, has said, well, they haven't said it, but there's been speculation, widespread speculation, that record fines are on the way from the Federal Trade Commission in the United States. Uh, Just perhaps remembering that all the attention's on fines, but it isn't just fines. And we've seen a little bit of other action. Uh, Very recently, the ICO has enforced against HMRC, the the, the tax authority, requiring them to delete biometric data which they obtain for voice authentication. So this idea, you can require deletion or stopping processing, is is a real one. Um, And it's also just perhaps worth mentioning that, of course, we haven't had many GDPR cases, but a lot of pre-GDPR cases are still flowing through the system. So certainly from the ICO, we've seen... We've seen fines at the maximum, the, the old maximum of half a million pounds, which was higher than was ever imposed before. There's Facebook, there's Equifax, which I'm sure we, we, you know, you'll want to come back on, uh, Uber, um, and some marketing ones where the ICO found Bounty UK, uh, 400,000 pounds. So, a very big fine for collecting and sharing information on mothers and their their children, uh, membership information, and basically sharing it for marketing. So, yeah, getting tougher, getting tougher all the time.
0: Thank you. So, Jane, in your view, what would be the most significant matters of the year?
2: Yes, so I think that I would like to actually just pick up on David's point about Equifax, which was a really interesting case. It's one of the ones where the top-level fine was handed out, £500,000. Um, It was under the old regime um, and it really illustrated, I think, one of the significant changes um, which we have anticipated um, taking place for some time. But it's interesting to see it in practice, namely that um, the authorities are now looking much more at systematically how a company complies with data protection requirements, not just um, the failure to put in place sufficient organizational and technical measures in relation to a data breach. So, um, in Equifax's case, um, the authorities looked not only at the breach itself, they considered where the data was located, which was in the United States, they considered the facts around the data breach, the fact that it had been identified um, by the US authorities and communicated to Equifax in advance of the attack, the period during which the attack occurred the fact that unfortunately some data which belonged to the UK um, organisation had not been migrated as had been expected from the US back to the UK and therefore had remained in the US in a sort of slightly unauthorised manner. I'm sure that was simply an oversight on the part of the company and we we know and can sympathise as to how difficult it is to ensure that you've stripped and migrated every element of data. But that in turn led to the ICO determining that data minimization hadn't been observed, that there was no purpose for keeping that data in the US, and accordingly that the purpose limitation principle had also been violated. Um, And they in turn then led to um, a sort of breach of data protection principle one, you know, that there was no fair and lawful basis for maintaining the data and Data Protection Principle 2, so not just the traditional mechanism for finding, i.e. looking at failure to put in place sufficient security controls. They also, though, did look at that principle of security and discovered that there had been no risk assessment, that the contractual provisions as between parent organization in the US and a subsidiary in the UK were inadequate, improperly documented. And that they hadn't put in place sufficient model clause type provisions governing the transfer of the data as between the UK and the US. So there are a whole range of failings. It's very interesting looking at the paperwork that that in itself was taken as a, a sort of strong indicator that uh, data had not been sufficiently organized or looked after within the organization. It's quite a chilling indictment looking at a number of areas. It's, it's obviously not sufficient simply to look after your security and give your IT department a, a large budget. You have to really interrogate what you're doing with the data, where it is, And on these migration exercises, which obviously many of our clients engage with, not just as a BAU type exercise, but also in the course of M&A activities as well, is to be careful about uh, ensuring that you really are on top of where the data is and ensuring that it has moved properly when that is the desired outcome.
0: I think there is some really useful takeaways from that, definitely.
2: Yeah, the, the other one that I would just point out on that is that is absolutely not good enough anymore as a subsidiary to rely on your parent and to um, sort of abrogate responsibility to say the um, parent department IT IT team um, or to the parent department compliance team. As the subsidiary, you are expected to be fully in control of your data and to undertake audits, assessments and checks. And that can be culturally quite difficult. Um, but I think through that and other cases that we've seen, for instance, the Yahoo case, very similar, you know, sort of the U, the UK subsidiary not properly sort of interrogating what its parent was doing. It's clear that that, uh, that compliance structure will have to change. OK, thank you. And
0: Nigel, maybe turning to you.
3: Sure. I mean, just picking up on what Jane said, I think it's it's. There's a real tension in organizations, isn't there? Because large companies in in lots of jurisdictions, often they're trying to centralize functions like information security, um, but also other functions. And in their efforts to centralize, there there often will be a a central point of control in in head office. And it's a real challenge for head office, in in that case, to roll out a program Uh, that meets the requirements of all of its subsidiaries. So I think it it makes that challenge all the harder to reconcile, you know, accommodating requirements of the subsidiaries while also trying to roll something out that's consistent and and works everywhere.
2: Absolutely. yeah, Definitely.
3: Um, But I mean, picking up on one of the other uh, themes and Jane's comments about the Equifax case, I think more broadly uh, regulatory enforcement action increasingly can provide really helpful insight uh, for organizations looking to minimize their risk of facing a regulatory fine Uh, in in publishing enforcement decisions regulators will typically or or may even be required to explain the reasons for their decision what an organization did or possibly failed to do uh, which led to to the fine regulators may even if they're feeling generous, highlight some of the positive things that an organization did, and we can learn a lot from those things. Um, I think from looking at all of the enforcement decisions over the last year or so, uh, there's there's a recurring theme that in the area of cybersecurity and uh, implementing appropriate security measures to protect data, organizations are time and again being found out for not implementing might be seen as basic and obvious measures. So failing to keep software up to date, failing uh, to promptly apply security patches, uh, failure to to have some basic measures like having in place uh, password policies that require strong passwords and uh, and where appropriate dual factor authentication uh, to access systems. And you know in a way organizations are making the the job of the regulators uh, you know perhaps too easy um, uh, in that case if there is an incident, regardless of what the cause of the incident was, if a regulator comes in and finds these basic failings, it's going to be going to be hard to def- defend um, I think the, the interesting point about this for a lawyer though, obviously as a lawyer you don't want to, you know go around dictating how an organization should keep information secure that that's for others to to really determine but the role of the lawyer in making sure all of this happens is in writing and working with the compliance teams to implement policies around this it's around uh, internal audit and ensuring those functions are carried out effectively and the findings are properly implemented uh, on transactions, it's about asking the right questions about a company that might be uh, uh, about to be acquired and integrated into your business to make sure through due diligence you're picking up issues, flushing them out, getting appropriate warranty protection. Um, it's about when you enter into agreements with third parties, suppliers, Um making sure you do the right due diligence, ask the right questions, implement the right contractual clauses. So there's a whole range of things that the lawyer can do to make sure that these basic hygiene measures are, are delivered. Yeah. And it's interesting what you say,
1: Nigel, about you know, regulators exposing their working, their thinking. Uh, I suspect we'll start to see more of that. I mean, there haven't been, certainly in the UK, there haven't been many appeals against the ICO's actions. When I was involved, uh, I was well aware that some of the businesses we imposed fines uh, against didn't agree with our decision, but it was simplest just to pay up uh, and have done with it. When you're talking about your 4% of global turnover, 20 million euros, the thinking is different, and we already heard that Google are appealing against their fine from the, the Uh Facebook are appealing against their fine by the, the ICO. And then you start to get tribunal cases and court cases where the regulators have to expose their thinking, and it all gets reported in judgments, and you start to get your court and tribunal judgments being sort of added on to the, this mix. Uh, you know, regulators might not like... Appeals—they're <laughs> a nuisance. People are, are challenging, but actually, it's good to see some of this exposed and tested in court. And if you're a regulator, actually, it's great when the court or the tribunal uh, uh, backs you up. And if they don't, well, quite rightly, it makes you go back and perhaps think again, be a bit more careful in the future, uh, adjust your way of working.
2: Mm. I personally am really pleased to see that the Facebook um, cases being appealed, because um, it would be all too easy for a company like Facebook to swallow the. £500,000 fine, which is a sort of tiny drop in the ocean. But nonetheless, I think it will be really interesting to see the points that they bring um, and to really interrogate some of the issues um, in that judgment, which I felt personally were, were quite harsh. I don't know, David, if you think um, that there was a degree of we need to see that judgment in the context of the sort of political environment in which the facts played out.
1: I think you're, you're absolutely right, Jane. I mean, I don't want to sort of accuse the, the regulator of being political, but this is a political environment. Uh, there was a, a parliamentary inquiry about Facebook. Unusually, the commissioner published the preliminary notice, which is the notice on which, you know, in this case, Facebook can come back with it, its representations before the final decision is made. Uh, now, that must have been because the, the commissioner was appearing before a parliamentary Committee and want it to be seen to be be taking action here. Uh, I don't know what the outcome will be, but there must be some risk of challenge that actually you're depart. You're certainly departing from your usual process, and whether you're departing from due process and fairness. uh, If you've published it, it's hard to go back when you receive the representations. We shall see. Watch this with interest, as you say. Yeah,
0: definitely. I mean, I suppose while we're talking about the regulators, maybe we can have a look at sort of regulatory trends that we've seen over the past year. So I don't know, uh, Jane, perhaps, have you got any thoughts on that? Are there trends that you've noticed emerging? Well, I think much to be welcomed
2: is the interest in innovation and product development and looking constructively and in a way to try and help industry and commerce develop new and interesting products, particularly those obviously focusing on innovative use of data. So the regulatory sandbox, the applications for which um, are sort of probably trickling in now, um, that I think will be very interesting for companies to to look at and to participate in. Um, The FCA, of course, has done this in the financial space for a a little bit longer. And I think that has been a helpful resource for many companies who are operating more in the financial services sector. Um, So I think that will be great to see that interaction between regulator and, uh,
0: you know, innovative companies. Interesting. Yes, definitely. And Nigel, have you got any views or thoughts? Um,
3: I've been really interested to to look over the last year or two at what the regulators have been saying about what their priorities are. And I've I've seen clients increasingly take an interest in that. Every regulator, of course, only has limited resources, and has to decide what to focus on. And I think we're seeing the focus evolve somewhat They're, they're pushing into some areas they, they perhaps haven't before, um, thinking about some of the new concepts under GDPR, like privacy by design and data protection impact assessments. Um, and so it's really helpful for organizations that have um, perhaps put in place new programs or enhanced data protection programs uh, to, to anticipate where the regulators might be might be most interested to see that they've they've made progress
0: yeah absolutely
3: um, you know obviously there's there's everyone will observe that technology companies in particular r- remain under the regulator spotlight but I think you do need to to look beyond that because once you get past the headlines about big tech companies there is an awful lot of other regulator activity going on. Um, which perhaps, although not headline grabbing, can be just as significant if you're impacted by it in your particular business area.
0: Okay. And David, I mean, as an ex regulator yourself, what trends are you seeing?
3: I mean, I think you
1: know Nigel's covered some of it, and it links into this this trend around. I mean, Elizabeth Denham has described it as concentrating on the fairness requirement in the law. So you've got to be fair to individuals. You've got to be open and transparent. And if you're relying on consent as your basis for processing, that's got to be absolutely you know, GDPR compliant. People have got to have all the information and a genuine free choice. And we've seen, I mean, the, you know, the big fine from the Cnil against Google was around. Ads personalization and lack of transparency, and Google relying on consent and it not being proper consent. Uh, Defines in the UK, Bounty UK, and and Emma's Diary were all around marketing information, passing on information when. People didn't know that it was going to be passed on, whether it's the new technology, as Nigel was talking about, around ad tech, or whether it's more traditional, you know, old style data broking and and selling on lists. It's all that that I I think the intention is is going to be on. If you look Ireland, just recently, the Irish authorities said they were... uh, I think they call it a statutory inquiry under their law into Quantcast uh, around processing and aggregating information for targeted marketing. So forgive me. if I was in the ad tech business, and particularly if I was one of those, you know they're not in the front line, processing behind the scenes, if you like, I'd be looking very, very carefully. Uh, at GDPR compliance and how, you know, what my basis for processing is, whether I've got consent and uh, yeah, how open I am, how do I get my, how, do, how is my privacy notice information uh, delivered uh, 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 to individuals. So I think that's very much the area that there's going to be attention on.
0: So in conclusion, if each of you were to give a suggestion in terms of how to avoid being in the firing line for enforcement action, what would that suggestion be?
1: Well, if you, if you don't mind indulging me, I'll give you two pieces of advice. I mean, the first is so often is the case, just remember the basics. Uh, there's a lot new going on, but the majority of the ICOs fines are still for unsolicited marketing, uh, your marketing, email marketing, text messages, fax, uh, without consent. Uh, so... Be careful because they're not just rogues are getting fined. There's reputable companies are uh, are, are tripping up and the ICO is is hot on this. There's no room for forgiveness. Uh, So make sure you comply. And then security. The breaches, Nigel mentioned it, breaches are are still occurring. Uh, The ICO has a simple view and it may be a, a, a simplistic view that, look, You've got no excuses if you don't keep your security up to date. You need to patch. Uh, maybe it is easier to say than it is to actually do. But the ICO's mindset is if you don't get security right, you know, you're on the chopping block, basically. So uh, be careful of those two. Then the, the other point that I I'd stress is around uh The need to have proper data governance within your business, sound data governance, as as Elizabeth Denham has said, uh, and accountability. So if something does go wrong, you can point and say, this was just a one-off. This was a mistake. We've got these processes. We've got these procedures. We've got this system in place to demonstrate that we take our privacy and data protection responsibility seriously. Uh, That's absolutely the key.
0: Okay, thank you. And Jane, perhaps we can turn to you. Sure.
2: Um, well, just a slightly different point. Looking at um, one of the issues I highlighted earlier, i.e., the, the sort of emphasis on innovation and new products and development, I think there is really important to be very transparent and clear in, about the way in which data is being used. And I think there's an increasing emphasis on fairness not just under data protection terms but also looking at other legislation like the unfair terms and consumer contracts legislation which has similar echoes to data protection requirements in that data the way in which those terms are communicated has to be extremely plain english accessible and no legalese so really sort of holding oneself to a high standard in terms of the um, comprehensibility of the information that you put out about your products, I think, is very important. And that goes some way to this whole issue of trust, of being clear with people about why you're using the data, what you're using it for, how much you retain, et cetera, and really trying hard to um, discharge those as, as responsibly as you can. Okay, thank you. Nigel?
3: Uh, I, I think one of the key areas where we've seen an up our- tick in inquiries and work over the last year has been in relation to data breach reporting no no surprise there we all, we all saw that coming um, also perhaps slightly unsurprisingly we are seeing organisations sometimes err on the side of over reporting or a desire to over report and i think we're advising and and you know we would counsel against that because regulators, at least some regulators, have explicitly said, please don't over-report. You know, some regulators, in particular the ICO, have been absolutely overwhelmed by the number of breach reports they've received, and they've published statistics on that. So the, 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 you, know, you may feel like you are doing the right thing, and the regulator will appreciate it if you over-report. But actually, the opposite will often be true. You're distracting their resources away from things that are important. And we see organisations wanting to report, perhaps even where they've concluded something's not reportable, or where they're not sure. Um, uh, you know, an organisation that suffers an availability breach—it's very unlikely that the lack of availability of data is going to be reportable under the test under GDPR. But we see, you know, organisations thinking about doing that. Um, interestingly. I have also seen quite a few examples now of organizations interpreting the term personal data breach wrongly, frankly, and interpreting it as a breach of data protection laws. Um, personal data breach reporting is about reporting breaches of security in, in relation to personal data, not reporting breaches of data protection law. So if you send you know, a marketing email without having in place the proper consent. That's not a reportable personal data breach. And so it's not really something the regulator expects you to to tell them about. There may be cases where it's appropriate, but you really need to think about what, why you're informing the regulator, what you and what the regulator is really getting out of it. Sometimes the regulator might appreciate Prior notice of an incident where they're likely to receive lots of complaints from individuals as a result of something happening—that that's helpful. Um, but really, if you're just telling the regulator to get it off your conscience, or if you're expecting to get some sort of uh, you know blessing for what's happened, don't don't expect that to be forthcoming. The regulator will often be helpful and, and provide advice. And so, if you you are genuinely seeking that, then by all means do so. But um, um, but think carefully before reporting, because every time you report something to a regulator, there's always the risk that they will pick it up and an investigation will follow and they will start looking into wider practices and, and you may ultimately regret it.
2: I totally agree with that. And I actually think also it reflects quite badly on a company that over-reports in a sort of nervous way, not really understanding where the lines are drawn. I think it's sort of unhelpful reputationally that they haven't got the courage to say that actually this is not reportable. Yeah.
1: And I understand from the ICO that they spend more time on their sort of phone line persuading people that they don't need to report it than telling them that they actually do need to report it. There is a tendency, as you say, to over-report.
3: In, in a way, it's a good thing. You know, the fact that organisations are trying so hard to comply with these rules, approaching it so sincerely and in a transparent manner, is only to be encouraged but it just needs to be tempered with, you know, with, with some plain old sort of common sense and stepping back and th- thinking about the bigger picture, uh, you know, before rushing in.
0: Well, I, I think that's given us plenty of sort of things to bear in mind and thoughts in terms of avoiding any potential issues in the future. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.